If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. We're looking at chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 1 through 9. So once again, that's the book of Joshua. It'll be chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. So, what are you most afraid of? There are hundreds or maybe even thousands of answers to this question just in this room by itself. In fact, the list of phobias that we have recorded is excessively long. Some of those things are more serious than others, and some of them are just obscure at best. Some people in this room may be scared of dogs. Others may be scared of of bugs or maybe even snakes or other creatures like that, man-eating worms and things of that nature. <laughs> Others of us might be scared of clowns, maybe small spaces or maybe even heights. But when you ask someone what they're scared of, you get answers like those. But there are also things that we're scared of that we don't so easily talk about. These, these are fears not of tangible things, but of situations and circumstances, things we can't control, things that happen to all of us. Like, for example, the fear of failure is very prevalent within our society. Many of us in this room would probably struggle with that at some time or another. At this very moment, right around the corner at the university, there are hundreds and thousands of students there studying hard and working and worrying at the neglect of their social life and their mental health because they want to get a good GPA and get good grades. Now, when nothing's wrong with studying, and obviously nothing is wrong with good grades, there, there, there are limits here. Some people stress too much. They're worried. They think if they get a low GPA or a bad test score, their life will be ruined and they'll be a failure for the rest of their lives. I've seen some of my peers stress about publications and stress about, you know, dissertation writing, things of that nature. They're scared that if they fail in graduate school, if they don't get that degree, they'll be a failure. They'll be an embarrassment to their family, maybe even their country. So fear of failure is very prevalent in today's life. But not only that, there are other things that we fear as well. There are those who fear rejection. These people work hard and everything, but they're hesitant to, let's say, apply for a job or apply to school. They're scared that they won't be hired or they won't be admitted. They fear not being accepted by others. So instead, they're paralyzed. They can't do anything. They can't move forward. So they're just stuck. Others fear being alone. They fear that some might fear they may die alone. Others fear that they won't develop any real friendships, relationships, so they spend all their time trying to be around other people, maybe in real life, maybe in social media. They're reaching out because they don't want to be alone. But also in our culture, there's this status anxiety, this fear of not conforming to the social or cultural success standards and thereby being robbed of your respect and dignity. This idea that if people don't accept you, then you're a failure. These people live their lives to please others. They filter all their decisions, what they will wear, where they will go, what they will do, based on how other people will respond to them. The fear controls and dictates their lives. So for us, we always fear the unknown and the unexpected. When our plans are stopped by something we didn't see coming, when something unexpected and devastating appears, we become fearful. When we lose a loved one, when we lose a job, or when a situation that seemed promising suddenly dissolves and is stopped in its tracks. We become uncertain about the future. We feel alone, without direction, and unable to move forward. So this is just a small sampling of some of the things that people may fear. But from this, we should be able to see very clearly that many people struggle with fear to some degree. In fact, all of us do. We are prone to let the circumstances and situations dictate and control our thoughts. In these moments, we think and feel as if there is no God, and we focus on ourselves, what we see, what we think, and how we feel. We become fearful. But how should our faith in God affect these fears? Does God want us to live in fear? Can fear and faith coexist? 
the short answer to these questions is that fear is not from faith. In fact, fear is the absence of faith. See, most times we are overcome with fear, especially we are thinking too much about ourselves and not enough about God. Thankfully, God knows our hearts, and he knows that we're prone to be fearful. From today's text, what we'll see is that to live by faith, you must take strength and courage from God. And in this strength and courage, we are not to be fearful and afraid. Look at me again at Joshua chapter 1. I'll read the passage for us. So starting at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of, that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now, I know very well and understand that none of us here are about to enter the promised land. I also know that we're not tasked with leading hundreds and thousands of people into the promised land on a conquest. But in spite of those realities, this text has much to say to us on today. Now, when this passage is usually taught, when it's usually preached, you hear something about being strong and courageous or maybe about being a leader of the people. But today, I would like to focus on Joshua as a man of faith. Yes, he was a leader, and yes, he was strong and courageous, but both of these things were rooted in Joshua's faith. So I want to look more at Joshua as a follower of God rather than a leader of men. I want to look at his faith and submission to God, because in truth, this is a greater reality. His faith and submission to God actually fueled his leadership of the people. So here in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, the people of God are in a crucial and sensitive position. The nation of Israel was free from slavery some decades ago from Egypt by God through, through Moses, and they journeyed through the wilderness to follow God and go to this land of promise. So while they were journeying through the wilderness, they were supposed to learn how to trust God, how to follow God. This lesson didn't really go so well. There was grumbling. There was disobedience. And this sin of the people, this unbelief, led to judgment. And those who originally came from Egypt ended up dying in the wilderness. So now we have a new generation of people, those people's offspring, who are there at the promised land waiting to go in, right there on the edge. But just when they're at the edge of the promise, just when they're about to go in, when they're so close that Moses can actually see the land from a mountaintop, Moses, their leader, dies due to judgment from God for his sin. So naturally, the people here are devastated. If you look at the ending of Deuteronomy, we see they've mourned for 30 days for Moses' death in the plains of Moab. See, Moses was their mediator. Moses was with them from the beginning since they were in the wilderness, and now he's suddenly gone. So without Moses to the people, it seemed as if the promise may have been in jeopardy once again. They wondered, would they be able to enter the land without Moses? Would they be able to relate to God in the same way without Moses? Would this new leader be able to lead as effectively as Moses? Things suddenly became a little less certain than they were before Moses died. This reality was fearful not only for the people, but for Joshua as well. Joshua, as the new leader, had all this new responsibility to take on. He was a little overwhelmed and maybe even fearful of this situation. 
So as a result, God speaks to Joshua and gives him encouragement to, to move forward and to live by faith. In short, God simply tells him that he has to live by faith to follow God and that God would supply graciously the strength and courage he needed to do so. So God calls Joshua to action in this text. He's not simply calling him to get up and go, but he wants him to go in a very particular way. This call to action has three exhortations to be strong and courageous in this passage. Each of these is rooted in a different reality. So today we will look through those three realities uh, and we'll work through them in the text. So the first thing we're going to look at is that to live by faith, we must take strength and courage from God's promises. So to live by faith, we must take strength and courage from God's promises. So the first chapter of Joshua, as I mentioned, is directly after the conclusion of Deuteronomy. So the nation of Israel here is still in the wilderness. They're on the plains of Moab. They finished mourning for Moses, but in verse 2, God speaks to Joshua very clearly. He says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. So in this verse, we see God call Joshua to action. He asked him to arise and to go. This call to action is the direct result of the death of Moses. It says here, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. So to do justice to the text, we have to understand the gravity of Moses' death. See, Moses' death was not only devastating to the people, but to Joshua as well. So in Numbers 11:28, we see that Joshua was Moses' assistant from his youth. Since he was a small child, he had been with Moses. In Numbers 13, 16, we come to find out that Moses gives Hoshua, which is H-O-S-H-E-A, which means he has saved the name Joshua, meaning the Lord saves. In Exodus 17, Moses charges Joshua with picking people to fight the Amaleks, and Joshua leads that battle. Exodus 24, Joshua accompanied Moses part of the way up Mount Sinai when he went to go receive the commandments from the Lord. And on the way down Mount Sinai, it was Joshua that told Moses there was a sound of war in the camp when the people were worshiping the golden calf. Joshua assisted Moses in the tent of meeting, where God would speak to Moses face to face. After Moses would leave, Joshua would just stay there and, I guess, guard the tent and hang out. And after his, before his death, Moses commissioned Joshua and laid hands on him. And it was said that Joshua was full of the spirit of wisdom. So I'm not going to say that Joshua and Moses had a father-son relationship or they were BFFs, but I will say that Joshua was with Moses for quite some time. He was used to him being around constantly, and now he's in this new position where Moses is actually gone. So he had some very unique experiences with Moses. He witnessed some things the rest of Israel didn't see, and so Moses being gone would likely have affected him. So this call of action here is in the context of Moses being dead. God says, Joshua, arise. So this call to arise is also linked to the promises of God. If you look back in the text, it says, Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them. So by commissioning Joshua and reaffirming the promise, God's communicating that although Moses is dead, God's purposes and plans are not. Some would say that God will bury the workmen, but not the work. Essentially, Moses is gone. However, things still have to proceed and go forward. So just to be clear, this promise that God's speaking of here is the one given to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. This promise, part of it included land, and this is the land that they were about to go and get at this point. So Joshua did have some experience with God and with leading the people in battle, but this new task of leading the people into land was definitely overwhelming for him. There were likely many, many people out there in the wilderness, and all their responsibility now fell on Joshua. And the bar had been set very high with Moses. It's a hard act to follow. On top of that, going into land would, would be a hard task. See, Joshua had been to land before. If you recall, he's one of the 12 spies that was sent into the land to go check it out. And so they went to the land, they went to go look, and then Joshua and Caleb say, this land is great, there's good stuff here, let's go take it. The other 10 guys say, there's some pretty big guys in there, they have some big walls and big cities, I'm not so sure about this. And so because of their disbelief, the fear spread amongst the whole camp, and the people did not enter the land. 
So Joshua knows not only the challenge of the people there and conquesting the land, but the challenge of leading the people who tend to be fearful and unbelieving. But now it's his responsibility to face this difficult task. And that's why we see God give Joshua encouragement. In verse 6, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So his courage here, this call to courage, is rooted in the promise of God. Joshua can be strong and courageous because God has promised the land to them. Notice here the strength is not coming from Joshua. God doesn't ask Joshua to look within himself to find strength. He does not ask him to use his willpower or look in the mirror and say, I can, I will, or those kind of things we hear today. He asks him to look at God's promise for the source of his strength. As a child, one of my favorite times of the year was, was, was summer. Obviously, school was out. You know, you had more freedom than usual, a little more variety in your day. And so one summer, my mom decides to sign me and my siblings up for swimming lessons because we couldn't swim. And something good to do in summer, it was hot, you know, let's get in some water. So we go to these swimming lessons, and, you know, it was a good time, generally speaking. Learn how to float, learn how to, you know, do the front stroke and the back stroke. I didn't quite get that one, but it didn't really matter. And... Somewhere toward the end of these lessons, the instructor wanted us to jump off the diving board and go into the deep end. So at that time, you know, I was kind of young. This is about maybe 10, 12 feet of water. I'm young. I'm only 5'9 right now, so then I was probably like 4 or something. And it just didn't seem like a good idea to me to, to jump into 12 feet of water. Like, yeah, I could float and I could do a little bit of something, but I just wasn't quite sure I was going to make it. I thought my odds were about 50-50, I might drown, then I would die, and there's not really any, any redos there, so I wasn't sure about this. But as I was fearful of, of jumping off the diving board, the instructor told me that she would come and save me if I, if I drowned. And <laughs> at that time, I was smaller, you know, a little shorter, a little lighter, so it seemed reasonable that she could get me to the bottom of the pool and bring me up. And so, because I trusted in her promise that she was capable of getting me from the bottom of the pool, that I wouldn't die, I had the strength and courage to jump. Nothing changed about how I felt personally. I was still at 50-50. But because she promised me, I was able to have strength and courage and make the jump. So in the same way here, God's promise to the people of Israel is a source of strength for Joshua to lead the people into the promised land. It's the promise of God that causes him to gain strength and courage. God himself is the source of this courage. Notice that although God calls Joshua to enter the land, every time the land is mentioned in the passage, it's a free gift of God. Look with me in verse 2. It says, the land I am giving to them. Verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised. It's a double promise there. Verse 4. All the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. So these statements are given in the past, the present, and the future tense. Given, have given, and shall be your territory. So God is assuring Joshua that he is presently working amongst the people to give them the land, that it is essentially done because he has decreed it, and that very soon in the future they will experience the land personally. So God is the one giving the land, he must fulfill the promise to Joshua. Joshua is simply a servant. He is guaranteed success based only upon the promise of God. This call to take strength and courage is a call to live by faith in God. So the first thing we can see from this passage is that Joshua is quite responsive to this call of God. I mean, God speaks, Joshua hears, and he acts immediately. He's available and he's willing. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we respond to the call of God? Do we respond in the same way that Joshua did? I mean, as the church, we've been called to make disciples and to live holy lives, to grow more and more into the image of Christ each day. How are we doing in these areas? Have we responded to the call? And if you aren't a believer, you're not off the hook here, you are too challenged by the call of God. It's a call to trust in God, to turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ to live by faith. Where are you at in that process? Do you think you can save yourself still? Or that you don't need salvation at all? That you're basically good? If we're to live by faith, if we're to be pleasing to God, we must respond to the call of God. We must follow after him 
and trust in Christ. This passage also shows us that to take courage in the promise of God. So to do this, we must know the promises of God. To take courage in the promises of God, we have to know what they are. We must believe them and believe that God is able to fulfill them. See, God's promises are meant to encourage us, to strengthen our faith and help us follow after God. Are we robbing ourselves of the grace that God provides through ignorance? Is the fact that we don't know the promises of God leaving us anxious and worrying all the time? If we're going to live by faith, we need to know God's promises. Jesus Loves Me is a great song, and you should teach it to your kids, but when there's hard situations in life, that's not going to get you by. You need concrete knowledge of God's word and God's promises. So for us in our lives, what does that look like? Many of us are scared to lose our jobs. Do we really trust that God will provide all our needs? Are we resting in that promise? Some of us are scared to evangelize. Do we really know that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus and that he will be with us always? See, these promises of God are really what should give us the strength and courage to follow after God in faith. Many of us, some in this room even, may be scared of coming to Christ because you think that, you have to, that he won't forgive your sins. You think that your past will be held against you or that you have to reach some standard before you come and give your life to God. But God calls you to simply come by faith. So to live by faith, we take strength and courage in God's promises. And it's wonderful here that, like I said, the land here is always a free gift to God. This passage should show us to be thankful for God's sovereign provision. In this case, Joshua's getting the land, but for us, God's provided many, many things. He gives good gifts to all. All things are from God. He gives rain to the just and the unjust. He gives common grace to everyone. Everyone experiences his goodness to some degree. He freely offers salvation through the work of Christ. He gives his people every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So live by faith. We must live as those who are thankful for all that God has done. So this call to take strength and courage from God not only stems from God's promises, but next we'll see that to live by faith, we must take strength and courage from God's word. So verses 7 and 8, the call to be strong and courageous is linked with the word of God. Look with me at verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. And verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So language of verse 7 seems to indicate that strength and courage are necessary for obedience to the law. See, all men are faced with the temptation to follow their own way instead of God's way. And as the leader of the people, Joshua will be confronted with this even more so. I mean, the people of Israel were a difficult people to deal with. Moses had to deal with them in the past, rebellion, grumbling, complaining. And this, this complaining eventually led Moses to actually fall into sin. If you look here in Numbers 20, the people gathered against Moses and complained that there was no water. They're complaining about dying in the wilderness, about how they should have went back to Egypt, completely disregarding everything God had done up to that point. Moses and Aaron, as good leaders, go to the tent of meeting and intercede before God and pray, and God gives them a solution. He says, okay, guys, I want you guys to go to this rock and speak to the rock, and the rock will bring forth water. So Moses and Aaron go out there, and the people are still complaining, and Moses, being a little angry, does not speak to the rock. He hits the rock. Now, the water comes out, but he disobeyed God directly, and he also took credit for actually bringing the water forth and didn't say it was from God. And so his judgment of not entering the promised land is rooted in the fact that he disobeyed the word of God. And so here God is encouraging and telling Joshua, you need to be strengthened and encouraged by the word of God. You need to submit to the word of God so he can actually lead the people well. So as the new leader, he would need the strength and courage to obey the word of God for the people. So compared to the last thing we saw, the last exhortation to be strong and courageous, there's a slight escalation here. He says, be only, only be strong and be very courageous. So there was no room here to waver on this matter. He would need absolute strength and excessive courage. So while the promises of God are guaranteed that the land will be given, God would not force his people to be obedient. 
it was upon Joshua to live by faith and obey God. So this book of the law referred to here is likely the first five books of the Bible written by Moses, probably mostly Deuteronomy. We're not exactly sure, but while there are many direct commands in those books, there's also principles and revelations about God, his nature, his character. So it's not all do's and don'ts here. So if you look at verse 7 and verse 8, the primary focus here is that Joshua would direct his life and live his life based on what the Word of God says. He's called to live in submission to the law, to obey it. His obedience is to be intentional and premeditated. It says he's to be careful to do all the law. Being careful normally does not happen by accident. It's normally thought out, premeditated, intentional thing that you do. So as a leader, his primary responsibility was to be careful to obey the law and lead the people well. So God doesn't simply tell him what to do. He gives him some help here and tells him how to, do, to go about doing this. In verse 80 says, the law should not depart from your mouth and that he should meditate on it. So the phrase not depart from your mouth isn't something we would say typically in today, but it does not mean that he never speaks about the law. It means the opposite. It means that at all times, the law of God would be in his mouth. He would talk about it frequently and regularly. And the word meditate here, he's called to meditate day and night, basically all the time, about the word of God. So meditation literally means mutter. It's this idea of someone just muttering under their breath over and over and over again the word of God. But these are not empty words here. These words are actually being processed and thought through. He's thinking about what the word of God means and how do I apply it to my life. And verse 8 agrees with this. So the result of meditation in verse 8 is, so that may be careful to do all that is written. So this intake of God's word is meant to impact the life of the believer in a very practical way. So Joshua is not just following a list of regulations, a list of do's and don'ts, but he is to have his heart and his mind transformed as he intakes the word and live his life in such a way that God is a central influence on in all that he does. He's taken in through reading, to think about it throughout the day, and to saturate his life with the word. In doing so, he'll be more aware of the desires of God and the purposes of God, and he can live and lead in light of those things. So although Joshua is to lead the people, he himself is to be led by the word of God in all he does. This points to the reality that God is the one that's truly leading the people. It is God's plan, achieve God's way. So to obey the word is the way Joshua must have faith. So the principal thing that we should see here from this portion of this passage is that if we're going to live our lives in a way pleasing to God, then we need our lives to be saturated with the word of God. The commands that are given here by God still work today, so I won't really change them. They're time-tested and they're approved. He says, read the word and meditate on the word. That's what we should be doing as God's people. It's not optional for the believer. Use whatever tools help you. If it's an app, if it's a reading plan, if it's a devotional, you know, whatever it is that helps you, use those things, but make sure that you're doing the important thing, which is reading the Word of God. Make an intentional effort to read and meditate on the Word of God. And when we do this, make sure you're not just, you know, going into your, your private place and reading the, the Word and saying, okay, I'm done. The goal is not to just say you did it. The goal here is to walk away with application. The goal here is to be impacted by the Word of God. So pray as you read the Word of God, and pray that God shows you how to apply the passage. You cannot apply what you don't understand. So read and seek to understand the passage, and then apply the passage to your life. So we're called to be doers of the Word, and not only hearers. This is why we must meditate. We meditate to be transformed by the Word. We should, every time you come to the text, we seek to learn something for God to be transformed. So here in the text, we're also called, we're challenged to speak the word. Now, I know that we won't be talking about things of God 24-7. You know, we, we obviously talk about other things. People have families, there's personal issues, hobbies. You know, you can't talk about God all the time. But what the passage is saying here is that at all times, what you say should be impacted by the word of God. So the, so the word affects your life. It changes how you speak, how you think, and the words that come from your mouth will be impacted by God. And so we need to be careful about this. The idea here is that as we're saturated in the word, all parts of our lives are affected by God. We need to be careful of compartmentalization, where we say that, you know, God can have this part of my life, you know, go to church on Sunday, Sunday's for God, 
but Monday through Tuesday, I'm going to do my own thing. Wednesday, I have a community group. That's, God has that. But then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'm back to doing my own thing. We can't section off our lives, pieces of our lives for God, and keep others to ourselves. We can't say God can, you know, I'll give God my money, but what I watch on TV or what I listen to has nothing to do with God. We have to wholly be transformed by the Word of God in all areas of our lives. This may sound very challenging, and in fact, I would say that it is. But God gives us grace so we can follow him in obedience. He provides strength and courage so that we can obey his word. So not only is it true that strength and courage are needed to obey the law, but it's also true that obedience to the law give you strength and courage. It produces strength and courage. In verse 7 and 8, there are two results listed here to obedience to the law. Good success and prosperity. This shows us very clearly that true success and prosperity cannot be achieved apart from the Word of God. True success and prosperity are linked directly with the Word of God and the purposes of God. If Joshua is obedient to God, he will be successful. In this context, success here means taking the land, acquiring the promise. Things will go well the way that God wants them to go. If he is disobedient, however, it says he's doing things his own ways. He's not trusting in God's plan. He thinks he can pull it off by himself. So this reminder here is to tell Joshua it's not all about the end result. It's about the process you go through to obtain the result. God wants things done his way. So the success and prosperity here are guaranteed if he's to obey the law. This guarantee gives Joshua confidence and surety that all things will be go well. He'll be successful if he's submissive to God. He can gain strength and courage and confidence from the fact that God has guaranteed and promised his success if he does things God's way. So Joshua's continued submission to the word of God is important because the people are about to go into the land. So in the wilderness, they had some sinful tendencies of complaining and grumbling, but going into the land, they would need to be a separate, distinct people of God and live by faith. So their leader needs to model this for them. The people need to see that although Moses is gone, Everything is not about to change. The word of God here is the constant theme between, Josh, between Moses and Joshua. In verse 7, it says, The law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. So by obeying this law that was given from God by Moses, there'd be continuity between Moses' leadership and Joshua's leadership. They'd be able to see that both men were in submission to God. There was no change within the nation, and this could be a source of strength for Joshua. Now, not long ago, in, in the early 90s, when I was a student in elementary school, there was a fad or a trend, whatever you want to call it, at Christian circles. There were these bracelets. On these bracelets were the letters WWJD in some weird block kind of font with periods after each letter for proper punctuation because that was important back then. And so these bracelets with WWJD, if you're unfamiliar, it stands for what would Jesus do? So the idea here was, you wear your bracelet, and by wearing this bracelet, you know, it would remind you to act in a way that's pleasing to God. You know, you're in school, someone cuts you in the line, you get mad, you're going to punch them, you're like, nope, Jesus. And so, you know, <laughs> you, know you don't punch them. So, so it's the idea that by, by being reminded that you're, you're a follower of Christ and that Jesus had a certain standard of living, you would affect your life. You would follow after Christ in that way. So while this was helpful, you know, it was popular, it was helpful to a certain degree, ultimately... We cannot be confident we are doing what Jesus would do or God would do without the word of God. We can't know for sure that we're pleasing God without his word. So through God's word, we can know confidently what actions are pleasing to God, what decisions to make. This is a great comfort for us. We can move forward now in strength and courage because we are 100% confident that we are doing what God wants us to do. And we need this strength and courage because in our culture, a lot of times what God wants us to do is not very popular. So likewise, in Joshua's case, Joshua could get strength and courage from the obedience from the word of God because he knew that if he obeyed the law, he was leading exactly the way that God wanted him to lead. He's leading exactly the way that his predecessor will led Moses. So he knows he's pleasing and acceptable to God by doing this. And this gives him strength and courage. So this obedience to the law is what's meant by the good success in verse 7. 
So because he's being obedient, he'll be successful, he'll achieve the purposes of God. This causes him to be strong and courageous. When the people grumble and question his methods, when they go to the new land and people are doing things a little bit differently, he'll be able to be confident in obeying the word of God because he knows for sure that he's being pleasing to God. Now, we need to understand this today and take time here. I would encourage you to please not listen to the TV preachers that want to give you the ABCs and one, two, threes of success and prosperity. Right here from the passage, we see that prosperity and success are never achieved outside the Word of God and the will of God. What I mean is that it's impossible to be prosperous or successful without the revealed Word of God. God is the one who makes the standards for success, and He's the one that judges whether you are successful or not. If you, are, if you are following God in genuine faith, you need not worry about whether you are successful according to worldly standards, because God has said you are successful. The world may want to know what you do or where you're from or where you live, how much money you make, what your GPA is, what kind of car you drive, and all these other things to determine whether you have success or not, but the judgment of the world is false on this matter. Worldly success is not true success. True success is based upon how you are following God in faith, how you are hearing to his words and purposes. So do not fear men and their judgments, but trust in God. Take strength and courage from the fact that you are being obedient to his word, that you are following him in faith, because it is that that matters, and it is that that means you are successful. You should direct your life and your decisions and your view of yourself from the word of God. So this knowledge here that we are in conformity to the ways of God should cause us to take a stand on God's word. We can take strength and courage from the fact that our actions are approved by God and not be concerned with what others may say. So God has called Joshua here to be strong and to be courageous based on the surety of his promises and the reliability of his word. Lastly, what we'll see here is that to live by faith, we must take, courage, we must take strength and courage from God's presence. So strength and courage from God's presence. So the final call here is rooted in God's presence. Look at me in verse 5. God tells Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Again, in verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So Joshua takes strength and courage from the presence of God. Now these words were no doubt a great comfort and source of courage for him. He was not simply going to walk into the promised land and set up tents, but there was a conquest to be had here. There was battles and wars, and these guys were pretty big, as we saw earlier. By saying he's going to be with him is God's way of letting Joshua know that although there will be much opposition, he'll be with him. He says, no man should be able to stand before you. This hints at the fact that there will be conflict, there will be opposition, but God will cause him to, be, to overcome these things. Now, Israel was not a military nation. By all normal means, this seems like the odds may have been against them in these conflicts. But what, what, what they learned from their history of their nation is that the battle belongs to the Lord. They had seen God deliver them miraculously over and over again. It was God that brought, them, that brought the plagues on the land of Egypt that set them free. It was God that parted the Red Sea and allowed them to walk over on solid ground. It was God that provided food and water as they wandered through the wilderness. It was God again that led them through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. It was God that caused them to be victorious in battle. In short, everything they had ever accomplished as a people was a direct result of the presence of God. They had not achieved any of these things on their own. So God promised not to leave or forsake Joshua guarantees that he will continue to work amongst his people. His presence will be continual. He would not get agitated one day and leave because the people were complaining again. He would not forsake them. That means he would fulfill all his promises and he would ensure they would enter the land. So the presence of God also means that Joshua is not left with a task by himself. He certainly might be feeling alone after the death of Moses, but God reassures him that he is not alone. Moses may be gone, but God is still present, and he promises to be with Joshua as he was with Moses. This statement has to be used for Joshua's confidence. 
Moses was so unique and so special to the people that following Moses was intimidating. If you look at the end of Deuteronomy, it says this, There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. I mean, that's the conclusion of Deuteronomy. And the next verse is Joshua chapter 1, and God saying, Joshua, you're up. So these are some big expectations to live up to. I mean, I'm just here today filling in for Chet, but as far as I know, there's no mighty deeds of terror and great power that Chet's done. Otherwise, this might be a little more intimidating than it is. So Joshua has to follow up Moses. And so he is rightfully a little intimidated and a little scared. Moses has been a pillar and a mediator for the people the entire time they've left Egypt. He'd been with them all, including Joshua, the whole time. They didn't know another leader. It was overwhelming to receive this responsibility. Joshua wasn't quite sure about himself, but God promises to be with him as he was with Moses. It points to the fact that for all these deeds and powers that they saw Moses do, it's really God producing these works. So God did not simply promise to be with Joshua in this arbitrary kind of way, like his power or his strength, but Notice God had promised his personal presence. Look at me in verse 9. It says, the Lord, your God, is with you. So he says, your God. He makes it very personal here that he is Joshua's God and, God, and Joshua is his servant. This is the first time in the passage for all the mentions of God and the Lord that he says, your God. He, he wants to reveal himself in a personal way. The presence of we with Joshua isn't just strength or power from God, but God himself with Joshua in a personal, relational way. Just like with Moses. So this is a great strength source of courage, and this matters a lot for us. I think sometimes as adults we forget how terrifying it can be to be alone. When I was in high school, I had a part-time job at Chuck E. Cheese's. If you're not aware, <laughs> this is a place where you take your kids and they have fun, right? There's There's food. There's games, you get tokens, you play games, you get tickets, you get prizes, everybody is happy. So this is basically how it works. But at Chuck E. Cheese's, when you enter the place, at least back when I worked there, there may be a new way now with technology and all, but when I was there, when you entered the place, each family would get a little stamp in their hand, and this stamp had a number on it, like let's say number two, 25, whatever. So your whole family would get the stamp. The idea here is that when you leave, we'll check your hands and make sure everybody has the same number. No one's kidnapping your child, all right? And so also kids can't leave by themselves. So what would happen is, you know, everything was safe. No one got taken, which was good. But occasionally, although kids can leave by themselves, the parents could. So every now and then, you have like a parent run to the car to get something or some other parents to let us babysit their kids, just go for a extended period of time, leave their kids, come back later. But occasionally, the kid would find out that they were in Chuck E. Cheese by themselves, and their parents were gone. They were alone, and they were just freaked out by this. You know, even though Chuck's there, they don't really care about that at that moment. There's games, there's fun, there's pizza, but they're alone, so it's a serious. And so every now and then we'd see this, and we would realize the kid was alone, and we would go to the kid, and we would try to comfort them, whatever. But they weren't really very comforted because they don't know who I am. I'm just some guy in a striped shirt, you know, with knee-high socks and some shorts on. Not very comforting there. But they were still very much afraid in this context. But it wasn't until their parents, so whoever brought them, actually came back that they stopped freaking out and they were okay. So it wasn't just about having a presence with them. It was about having a relational, personal presence. Someone they actually knew. Someone they actually could relate to. They trust their parents. They love their parents. And it's this relational presence that gave them desire to go to their parents. And so in Joshua's case, it wasn't just that God was going to go with them, but God was going with them in a very personal, relational way. And this gave him strength and courage to move forward in what God calls him to do. So this text here calls us to change our thinking about who God is. God's not some distant God that sits back and just watches the events of the world unfold and doesn't know what's happening. He's intimately involved in the world and with his people. He's a personal God. He desires to dwell amongst his people. We see this in the Old Testament. He wants to be with his people. They make a tabernacle. There's a temple. 
And ultimately, we see this in Jesus Christ. God comes in the flesh to dwell with his people. He takes the initiative. He gets involved. We see this once again with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God dwelling with us. The Holy Spirit is in those who trust in Christ. It's given freely. He dwells permanently. So God is with us. We should be thankful for God's willingness to be with his people because, after all, we're not perfect people. So we should be thankful that God goes through all this to be with his people. And as we seek to live by faith as believers, we can take strength and courage from the fact that God did not leave us alone to do so. He's with us in all we do. He works in and through us to bring about his purposes. He teaches by the Spirit. He convicts us of sin by the Spirit. He points us toward Christ by the Spirit. He sanctifies us so that we are more like Christ by the Spirit. He's with his people, and he has promised not to leave us or forsake us. It's this personal presence that gives us the ability to live lives that honor God. We should take strength and courage from this presence of God. Now, we should all be thankful for the graces that God provides so that we can walk by faith and follow after him with strength and courage. You see, Joshua was strong and courageous as God commanded. Spoiler alert, I'll tell you the story here. He led the people by faith, and they actually entered the promised land much later in the book. So although they were successful in taking the land, all the promises of God were not yet fulfilled. See, the promises that God gave Abraham in Genesis 11 included land, but they also said that Israel would become a great nation. They also said that based on Israel's relationship to God, they would be blessed, and through the special relationship with God, they would be able to bless others with that. But the history of Israel shows us very clearly that the people did not realize all these promises in that physical land. They did become a great nation, but they did not walk in the ways of God. They were unable to keep the covenant with God due to their sin. As a result, they were eventually removed from the land. In God's grace, he actually restored them eventually, but he promised them that he would make a new covenant with his people. They would truly be his people, and he would truly be their God. He would forgive them of their sins, he would wash away their iniquity, and they would truly follow after him in faith. This new covenant would change their hearts and restore their fellowship with God. It's through this covenant that all the nations would be blessed, because all the nations could then be God's people truly. See, this new covenant did not happen under Joshua. It came, it happened, this inheritance of nations, this new covenant, through the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is Jesus that leads Abraham's offspring, those who live by faith, into the promises of God. In Galatians 3.16, Paul says, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but to, referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ, then, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises given to Abraham. It is through Christ that all nations are blessed as they are saved from their sin and restored to fellowship with God. See, all men from every nation, every country, and every ethnicity are guilty of sinning against God. See, God is the creator of all, he's the judge of all, and he exists in perfection and holiness. He cannot have fellowship with sinful men. In order to restore this fellowship between God and men and remove the stains of sin from humanity, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, wholly pleasing to God. His entire life he lived by faith, taking strength and courage from God. I see this very clearly if we think about Passion Week here. Jesus triumphantly enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and he goes through the week. And toward the end, when he knows he's about to be taken to be crucified, to be betrayed by Judas, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying to God. He knows that he's going to die soon for sins of the people. He told the disciples that he was going to go pray because he was very sorrowful. He went to pray, and he prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Even in this dark moment, he trusted in God and submitted himself to the will of the Father. He knew that he would die, yet he received strength and courage from the promise of God that he would raise him. He knew he was going to his death, but he received strength and courage from the presence of God as he went to the cross. 
He knew that he had to die, but he received strength and courage from the word of God, knowing the scripture had to be fulfilled, that he must suffer and be raised. He was taken from the garden as a prisoner. He was condemned to death. He died as a substitute on the cross for sinners in accordance to the plan of God. God raised him from the dead according to the scriptures, showing that the sacrifice was accepted by God and the sin of man had been paid for. And now because of what Christ has done, by faith, we can enter into the promise that was initially given to Abraham. Our sins have been forgiven. We are restored with fellowship with God. And we have now obtained a promise by faith in God. So we call you today to put your faith in Christ. For those of us who are believers, continue putting your faith in Christ day by day. Don't let the circumstances or situations tempt you to look elsewhere, but always look to Christ. Always look to his cross for strength and encouragement. For those of you that may not be believers, again, put your faith in Christ as well. Christ has made a sacrifice for our sin. He called us to come to him and to receive his free gift of salvation. So to come to Christ, you must turn from yourself. You must turn from your ways and what you think and follow after him. You must put your faith in the finished work of Christ, that he actually died for sin, and that you can have fellowship with God. It's always been the case that the people of God must live by faith. See, faith in God may be challenging in many cases, but God always provides his grace so we can follow him faithfully. We have nothing to fear because we have God's promise, God's word, and God's presence. So to live by faith, we must take our strength and courage from God. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, God, that, that you give us strength and courage so that we can live by faith. We know that in the world there are many situations that, that tempt us to to turn our eyes away from you, that we are prone to be fearful, that we are prone to, to not stand firm in what you revealed. We pray, God, that, that through this we'll be encouraged, Lord, to take strength and courage from you based on your word, based on your presence, and based on your promise. We thank you, God, for all that you've done. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.